In this series of career sessions, all of our guests hold doctorates in their chosen field, and we invite them to talk about their pathway from PhD candidate to present day. We ask them what they've learned, and we also ask them to give advice to people who might be thinking about a career in research when they've finished school or when they've finished their undergraduate degree. Welcome to Career Sessions with your hosts, Steph and Tamara, proudly sponsored by Inspiring South Australia. So today we've got Professor John Coveney, who graduated from Murdoch University in 1996 with his thesis um, titled The Government and Ethics of Nutrition. Uh, John has navigated a career which has seen him travel around the world and he has contributed enormously to the health and well-being of individuals and populations. He has mentored HDR students, early career researchers and supported undergraduates with their first experiences of research. He's written eight books and many more book chapters and has more than 200 published research mm. articles. Uh, he's very well regarded and distinguished researcher and these days he heads up an international research collective for food, culture and health, among other things. He can usually be found in his office at Flinders University. Welcome, John. Thank you very much, Stephanie. <laughs> okay, John, first of all, just to set the scene of where we're at, what is your job? What is your role and what is your day like? I'm Professor of Food Culture and Health. And in that role, I produce research. I support students doing research. And I apply for funding to do research. And it's a really groovy area because our neon light is about sharing meals. We believe that uh, we're interested in the extent to which people share meals, the health benefits of sharing meals and any barriers and levers that may operate in that particular area. So it's been a really interesting journey. We've been doing this for about three years and I've been surprised at how many people have come to us from different parts of health and medicine uh, to uh, allow us to explore the opportunity to share meals. So it's the culture of eating together. It is really, it is really right. yeah. And uh, we have been working recently, for example, with people from audiology because it turns out that one of the telltale signs for uh, hard of hearing is that people disqualify themselves from sharing meals because it's just too difficult for them to oh, keep up the yeah. conversation and they just they just sit back and say, I can't do this any longer. It's a telltale sign for serious hearing loss. You wouldn't have thought that, would you? No. no so, I, my grandfather, whenever he sat down for a family meal, we had very large family, very noisy family, he'd just turn his hearing aids off. Yeah. And so he wasn't even <laughs> part of the conversation. You'd say, oh, Papa, you know, what do you think? And nothing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he probably did that on purpose. Like, yeah. Yeah. So Bunch people, of screaming kids, I'm out of here. <laughs> so we've actually got some students who are doing a research project on that, some audiology students who will be talking to people in couples with uh, one of them with hearing loss and the other one having to talk about what that's like in the area of conviviality mm -hmm. and uh, others who don't have hearing loss but may still experience the problem of noisy restaurants and things mm. like that. So that's my day job. I also do some teaching and at the moment I'm teaching on a topic called qualitative research methods, which is good because that's really where I kind of sit with my methodologies for, for research. So on a, on a normal day I'd be counselling PhD students, I'd be writing grants, I'd be uh, putting ideas to my colleagues about the direction of our research as well as taking care of students who are enrolled in a topic around qualitative research methods. So I've got a very rich um, 
area of of the academy that I operate in. I'm very lucky. You are. So there's a variety, there's a spice of yeah, life. Yeah, it is. So, yeah. yeah. Bring it back to the beginning where your whole journey began. Um, when you were a kid, like, did your parents go to university? Was academia something that was... Um... No, no. In fact, I grew up in a part of London where I can't remember anybody going to university, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it was just wasn't part of the expectation that you would do that. In fact, before I went to university, I did an apprenticeship as a printer. <laughs> I did a trade. And um, through that trade, I got some trade qualifications, a bit like TAFE, Mm. and that allowed me to take a journey into academia. Mm. Um, And so I I did that. It was terrifying. It really was terrifying because I had no... Completely unknown. I I had no expectations. I didn't have any real support because nobody I knew had taken that journey. so it was an area of my life that still kind of I reflect on and think, well, you know, that was quite brave to do that. And um, the trade qualifications really had nothing to do with the area that <laughs> yeah. I was interested in, <laughs> so, but they got me into uh, they got me into university. Yeah. So, what made you make the decision to make that jump from trade into university? Yeah, I think that I was a curious kid. And that curiosity was never fully satisfied when I was at school. You know, I went to a, I didn't go to a grammar school. I didn't go to a school that specialised in academia. I went to what was called a secondary modern school. <laughs> so, you know, you were destined to do trades yeah. there. But I knew I had more than I was giving yeah. and I really needed to leave school and, and go to work and experience work yeah. and what work was like yeah. and realise that I'd really missed some opportunities by not paying attention at school and then... When I was a printer, you were allowed to go to day school, you know, one day a week, mm. and I was doing rather well. And uh, I did actually have some of the lecturers who said, you know, if you wanted, you could actually go on and enter university if you mm. took this particular pathway with your trade qualifications. Um, so that was lovely that people actually took an interest and in me. And, you yeah, and recognised you. And, yeah, and, and really helped me. Uh, achieve what it was I was able to achieve. Mm. But going to university was actually quite difficult because, you know, I was surrounded with people who had kind of gone to school, gone to grammar school, got the row levels, got the A levels and then went to university and I kind of came in sideways. Mm. And um, so because I didn't follow the normal trajectory, again, that was a little bit scary. But I did rather well in my course, which was a a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by food and I was, a, I was a good scientist, I was a very good chemist. Mm. So the kind of chemistry of food and nutrition was really appealing to me. Although I went to university without doing any biology or botany or anything like that. You just threw yourself in the deep end? I just, again, <laughs> I threw myself in the deep end. And I remember a couple of the first lectures, um, I thought the lecturer was saying D and A and not D and A. I had no idea yeah. what. <laughs> I should have kept those notes to remind myself that <laughs> I really was nowhere near where you should have been. And now look where you are now. Well, you so, know. Yeah. Did you, so the step from printing to food, were you a, a foodie? I was, and I did toy with the idea of going into hospitality, but mm-hmm. to be honest, the hours of working were so antisocial. Mm-hmm. Even at that age, I thought, I'm not going to stick this. If I go to work in a restaurant or a bar or something like that, I'd be working when all my friends are partying. So I wasn't very keen to do that, although I did maintain, I still maintain, a very strong interest in 
cuisine and food and uh, the different cultural aspects of food. That's something that I'm fascinated by and I'm supported in that by my partner, Melanie, my wife. In fact, I think that we probably got together because we were so interested in in food and cuisine. Mm. Um, And um, so that was something that fascinated us and still fascinates us, Mm. yeah. It's a good thing to be in, I think. So how old were you then when you started at university? Did you did you finish your trade qualification? Yes, I did, and yeah. I worked as a printer for a couple of years mm-hmm. as well. Um, I entered university when I was 23. Okay. Yeah, 23, getting up for 24. It's a mature age. Yeah. yeah, and that in the UK that brought its advantages because I was able to get a full grant to study. Oh. I didn't have to pay any student fees or oh, anything so like jealous. that. <laughs> not only did I not have to pay that, but the, you know, the state paid me mm-hmm. to to do my degree. So I was very lucky there that I got a full grant from um, from the state, which meant I didn't have to worry about my parents' contribution mm-hmm. or anything like that, which would have been a hassle because, you know, they were very supportive, my family, but, you know, we were hard up for money, so it wouldn't have been something they would readily have parted mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And so from your undergraduate degree... Did you go on and do honours or masters? I did, yeah. I did a, I did an honours degree in nutritional biochemistry. And at the end of my honours degree, I could have done a PhD, um, but I decided not to. I was really interested in travel. So with my partner, Melanie, we went to Papua New Guinea mm. and we did some voluntary services work there as part of an organisation called Voluntary Services Overseas. And we stayed there for two years. And it's probably the most formative time of my whole life. Mm. Um, those two years, being in a culture that was so foreign from my own. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was different. Everything was just totally different. It was quite scary, <laughs> actually. And I, it was good the job that there were two of us because we could mm. support each other. But I was a, a, a nutritionist for one of the provinces, mm-hmm. Madang province in New Guinea. Um, and when we finished that, I thought I would do a PhD then uh, because I worked with some researchers who were interested in the growth of children. And I thought I would do that, but no, I parked the idea and then came to Australia. And I worked as a, a dietitian, both a clinical dietitian, so I was seeing patients. I worked for five years at the Sydney Children's Hospital, so I was working with families, and I really loved that. And I was working in the community, uh, writing policy for um, child nutrition. But one of the things that had continued to interest me while I was a practicing dietitian was the way that people expressed guilt mm-hmm. when it came to food and eating. I was fascinated by this. So like the idea of bad food. Bad food. Yeah. You know, so if I was counselling somebody about weight loss and I was counselling them in a follow-up interview, it was very common that you're going to be very cross with me. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be very angry because I, I just feel so guilty. I wasn't able to follow the instructions that you you got. I was fascinated by that. What is going on here? You know, we've got a, a 45-year-old man asking me, you know, <laughs> a, a youngster for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. What is going on here? So that kind of, um, that, that stayed with me, that, that interest. When was it that we started to feel guilty about eating the wrong food, the Mm -hmm. bad food. And that was really at the centre of my PhD, although initially my PhD was about family food practices Mm -hmm. and I collected a lot of information from families about how food um, is distributed in terms of responsibilities, who cooks, Mm -hmm. who shops, uh, who looks after the kids, da-da-da-da-da-da. So I was very interested in that and I collected a lot of data. But then I veered... 
sideways into a much more theoretical uh, area. So my, my, my empirical results that I came up with, I didn't really use them in my PhD. And in fact, I've got a PhD student at the moment who is now in command of my, has custody of all my data. <laughs> so this is uh, a, a study where I interviewed families in a less well-off area of Adelaide, mm -hmm. 20 of them, and in a more bourgeois area of Adelaide, mm -hmm. 20 of them. I went back to each family on three occasions to collect information about family food practices, and I hardly did any of the research extra to that. So my student, Georgia, is now taking that data and she's analysing it, and then her next step is to uh, talk to people today. So her thesis Ooh. is really about, you know, 30 years on, what's, yeah. what's changed. How's it, has wow. it shifted? How's it and shifted, it, it yeah. has to have because the roles of parents in the, in the home have changed. Completely, and in those, when I was collecting my data, the only real area of technology that we had to talk about was the TV or the radio, <laughs> whereas now, of course, yeah. it's all over You're the place. You've got reading with yeah. phones. And, yes, yeah. so yeah. there's... You know, so she's she's interested in the construction of the family mill mm -hmm. back then, thirty years ago, ish, mm -hmm. and and today. So that's great. But my own work veered off into the kind of morality of of, of, of eating. What did the morality of eating look like before the science of nutrition came? Because we know that people did have moral views about what you yep. know you should eat with the good food and the bad food. That and wasn't necessarily based in science. It was no, it was often based in quantity. Yeah. You know, so gluttony was a problem. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. You know, gluttony was a huge problem, especially for Christians. Mm. So when the, the Christian religion started to develop in a full doctrine, um, food and the pleasure from food was highly problematic, mm. as were many other areas of, of pleasure. Mm. Before that, the Greeks... The ancient Greeks also yeah. had a lot to say about how to be moral around food, and their big deal was you had to be moderate. You weren't supposed to be completely abstemious. Mm. That was far too, that was far too strict. And you weren't, of course, supposed to binge. You had to have some kind of moderation because if you could exercise control mm. over that moderation, it said something about your ability to lead a life qualified by the polis. So this is really, these were really instructions for men. Yep. Women and children and slaves didn't matter. So it was about your place in the polis. Mm. So you had to be moderate with what was called the natural appetite. So that was an appetite for food, but it was also an appetite for sex. Mm. So one had to be very moderate in meeting one's needs uh, in that area. So, you know, that was, that was quite interesting for me to see these... Um, ancients playing out roles around, around food and uh, criticising each other. And so, no, so nothing's really changed too much. Especially just, in our Now cult? we just add social media and we add. That's well, we right. have got yeah. all these issues with um, um, where your food comes from, how it was produced. Sustainability. And, so, yeah. And, and while they didn't call it sustainability in ancient Greece, they were concerned with where the food came from. They were concerned about eating food within the seasons. Mm -hmm. All those things were important to them. Captured in a practice called the dietetics. Mm -hmm. Now, we use the word dietetics to describe a field of study, a field of treatment. I mean, I'm a dietitian. But in those days, dietetics, diete, means every day. Mm -hmm. And the dietetics was a code for leading a moderate life every day. Wow. And there was heaps written about it. And so there have been some, some books that I was able to access. And then, I, then my, in my study, I then came through to the Christian era mm. and mapped that out. 
and the Renaissance and map that out. And then I came rather swiftly to nutrition, which then gives us another code mm. of trying to understand what's good to eat and what's bad to eat. And so that's why my patients were able to articulate that very very easily for me because we've had already 200 years of, mm-hmm. of, of, of nutrition which says if you eat this, it's bad food, therefore you should feel bad. Yeah, and even though the rules are somewhat unwritten, we, we pick them up, you know. Oh, I, I, there was a lovely poster on the side of an articulated bus um, and it was uh, on the front of the bus, it said, another serve of French fries, please. Mm. Um, in quotes, and on the back of backs on the on the side of the bus on the second part of the articulation, it said, "Atone for your sins," mm-hmm. and the word "tone" was cleverly laid over a, a low-fat milk uh. called tone. <laughs> yeah. Now, what struck me about that was that that needed no decoding yeah. whatsoever. Nobody was going to say, "Just a minute." Another serve of French fries, please. How do these please, two things related? Yeah. A tone, why is there something sinful about French? No one it needed to say that because we know that. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the ad didn't have to say anything to kind of cash in the meaning. And again, I thought, well, that's f- I've got a photograph it somewhere. I thought, that's fascinating that we don't even have to decode that. It's so bleeding obvious. Why is it obvious? What is it about eating food that hasn't got the nutrition stamp of approval? makes us feel mm. guilty. And, of course, that flows all the way through to some of the problems we have today. Mm. So having pleasure around food, well, yes, let's do that, but an overindulgence, mm. well, that's hubris. Yeah. So I'm going to track this back onto the... <laughs> onto the <PhD. laughs> I'm just yeah. thinking this is a Please huge do. field. Yes, <laughs> massive field. Um, so it seems to me that the PhD was always on your radar. It was. Ne- it, was it, not, it wasn't a lot of people that seems to be something that they just stumble into or, or it's almost a... Uh, uh, they get to a point where they go, oh, I might do this. But from, it sounds like your story is it was always there. It was, it was there. I've got a good degree. I've got a good honours degree, and that qualified me to do a PhD. So, you know, at university, it was something that you were counselled about if mm-hmm. you had a reasonably good degree. So I got a 2-1, and that was allowed me to, to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. So it was something that was part of a pathway, but I issued it on a number of occasions. When I was working in New Guinea, I was working researchers, and, you know, I wasn't a, I wasn't a, a fully paid up researcher then. So it was something that kind of attracted me. Um, And it was only when I started to toy with this idea of what is it about food and nutrition that makes people feel guilty, I realised that, you know, there's an opportunity here because I couldn't really find any literature on this. And um, I I, I wasn't a researcher at the time. I was a practitioner. Mm -hmm. So coming into a PhD research as a practitioner, it has has a lot of benefits as well because you're not stepping straight from the books to the books. You kind of you've had a you've had a very good opportunity real to life. work with people and mm. understand people's real problems. And and although I was able to do my PhD not in biochemistry or nutritional sciences, I had to go into the humanities mm-hmm. and had to learn how to think in the humanities, which mm-hmm. is very different from scientific thinking yeah. and mm-hmm. scientific discourse and learn how to write in the humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. It was ter- I can remember I asked my PhD supervisor if I could do a third-year course on cultural theory, and he mm-hmm. said, yeah, I can get you to do that. So uh, I did that. And the other students were just speaking a language I had no idea about, <laughs> and I was, I was terrified. So that was scary. Mm-hmm. Um, to do my PhD in, in a very different part of the university, I was quite a good... Um, bio- biochemist, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I could I could write down the Krebs cycle and things like that. <laughs> um, but to actually then do justice to philosophy mm. and cultural theory, that was very scary. But very you found your you found your niche by the sounds of it. Though, I, I, it took a while, mm-hmm. Tamara. It took a while. I did a couple of things which you probably shouldn't do when you're following a PhD. First of all, I became a dad. <laughs> <laughs> so just throw an extra yeah. uh, commitment on top yeah. of a PhD. And then I changed supervisors. That's another <laughs> cardinal sin. And then I changed um, towns. I left Perth where I was living and I moved to Adelaide. Oh. Um, and these you are really the days. You did your PhD remotely. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yep. So you, you're not supposed to do any of those things. <laughs> no. But the fact that I did this is living proof that it's, it's possible, people. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I had a baby during my PhD too, so it's, it's two of us here saying, yes, well, you can do that. Yes. Um, so how? So would your project then, your your own uh, choice and your own methodology, and you, you had control over it or or was it part of a larger project? Or? No, I had complete control over that. When I changed supervisors, I inherited a supervisor who was unbelievably bright, Alec mm-hmm. McCall. He, he used, you know, this guy grew up in the humanities uh, and he used a language which was very unfamiliar to me at the beginning, but gradually I got used to understanding what he was what he was saying. So it was highly theoretical, the work that I was doing, always coming back to social and cultural theory. And I pretty much had a free reign with that. Um, and I had a free reign with the structure of the thesis as well. It wasn't the usual kind of literature review methodology, da 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 da, because I really have very little empirical data. The empirical data that I collected was like a quarter of a chapter that I wrote. <laughs> it was much more of a story, which made it easy for me when I submitted the PhD and later was to actually turn it into a book, which mm-hmm. I did. I mm-hmm. turned it into a book. I got publisher Routledge, who was interested, and uh, second edition is out there now. It's called <laughs> The Pleasure and the Anxiety of Eating, Food, Morals and Meaning. So, um, you know, I'm quite proud of that. Okay. And on the cover is a Peter Paul Rubens of the Bacchanal, mm. which is this very, you know, you know, Rubens' work is all this yeah. indulgence yeah. and this flesh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and yeah. exa- that's exactly the, 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 um, Publishers wanted to give me bunches of grapes, and oh, I said, yes, no. like, "This is not no. enough. <laughs> no, no, we're not any bowls of fruit. We want we want something that's much more physical, mm-hmm. much more visceral." And when they came up with this, I said, "Yes, that's what we'll have." <laughs> so I was pretty much in command of that, which in many ways was an advantage, but in many ways was not an advantage because. You know, Alec was great, but he wasn't laying out for me the stepping stones. You know, ah, to so the, a traditional PhD, for whatever that means, um, the structure is quite straightforward. Um, and you did collect data. I did. Um, but, but you yeah. ended up with something that was quite different. Yes, like, it was. Different to imagine. Yeah. Did you have like PhDs that you could look at as examples for what there you There was were one but written by a guy called Michael Simons who's probably very famous for a book called One Continuous Picnic and mm-hmm. Michael looked at the sociology of the meal um, which again was highly theoretical. Mm-hmm. It's a very good thesis actually because mm-hmm. he was a journalist by background so he writes like an angel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to look at that and a couple of others but no, it was... <laughs> It was really me making it up as I as I go along. It yeah. really was, and I just felt um, c- 
comfortable with with what it looked like. Mm. I felt very comfortable with with, with what it looked like. I, I, I won't bore you with the methodology and the theoretical orientation, but you um, might lose us, in fact. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So so it it had a very strong theoretical basis. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to use that to take it forward into a kind of a narrative. So it was really a history of the morality of food mm. from amazing. the ancients. Yeah, I, I want to read this now. To <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, read food we'll morals the, we and meaning. We can get the author's <laughs> autograph. <laughs> Second edition out now. Um, so would you say that lack of structure was the most challenging part of your PhD? Yes, it was uh, because there was no hand-holding here. Um, it's not as though I could catch up with my supervisor every fortnight. Mm. This was really the days before in, the internet. And, oh, um, yeah. There was something called oh, Arnet, which you, you was... You made this hard for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> there was something called Arnet, which was the very beginnings of email. Mm. This was something that was stretched across academics. Mm. Um, and then when uh, email was fully fledged, that was really the last few months of my PhD. Mm. So I was fortunate in that Flinders did give scholarships for finishing a PhD. So I was bought out of my teaching mm. for the last six months where I could immerse myself from, you know, the kind of the neck up in, in what it was I was trying to do. And I just had part, I remember the, I was using somebody's office and I just remember these piles of paper, which was chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Um, for me to continue to 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 search through, yeah. So it was quite challenging. And so and so, how did you keep going in in, in amongst all those challenges that were significant hurdles? It's a terrific partner, um, and I think that my kids. By that time, I had two children, so that was. <laughs> so you did it twice. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading a book that was somebody's PhD. And in it, the author had said, a guy had said in the acknowledgement, thank you to my supervisors, thank you to the participants, thank you, thank you, thank you, um, thank you to my wife and to my children. All I can say is I'm sorry I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm sorry, but I'm just, that is to me is appalling. You know, you can do a PhD at any time, but you can only be a dad over a certain period. Mm-hmm. So I was then committed to being a dad while doing a, 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 a PhD. And I and, and I kind of did do that. You was know, it full I time to, your PhD? Th- in in the last six months, it was. Yeah. Mm. So I would take the kids to childcare and school, and then I would come home and and you know crank up the computer and then the dial up. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. And um, in the evening, when they went to bed, I would go back and and unpack it again. And think, mm. so that was really what kept me going. I knew that I had. I felt that I had a good story to tell here mm-hmm. and one that was reasonably easy to cash in, mm-hmm. you know, as I think we may have done here. It was mm-hmm. reasonably easy to cash it in. It wasn't something that needed a lot of explanation. And that kind of taught me that there was something interesting in what I had to say. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I just felt there was a, an opportunity mm-hmm. to make a contribution here. So, so that was kind of what kept me going. Mm-hmm. Um, Alec was a good supervisor. He was very inspirational. Um, and I remember he looked at a first draft of the whole thing and he said, I think we've got a PhD here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and that was to hear him say that. I had him on yeah. a pedestal by that mm-hmm. time, you know, mm-hmm. I worshipped him. But so to hear him say nice things about my work was really lovely. And it was, we used to, I used to post it 
you know, drafts to him, <laughs> post drafts to him, oh, and then man. ring him up a few days later, see if he if he had received it. Yeah, <laughs> but that's what you did, you know, in the, in those days. So I was kept going partly because I wanted to continue to be a, a successful academic, uh, partly because I had a story to tell, um, and partly because I knew that this was the beginning of something that I wanted to continue to explore. You've sort of already alluded to it, but why was your your PhD project important? What was the value for everyday person at the end of this? Oh, well, I suppose it was important to me because it was part of a career trajectory. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to be serious about your role in academia, you really do need to have a qualification that Mm -hmm. allows you to speak about something in a more authoritative way. And that's really what a PhD does. Mm -hmm. And I tell this to my students, in many ways, that's all a PhD does. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking in the sense that, you know, it's just earth shattering and it probably won't be the most important thing that you'll ever do in your life, although it might feel like that at the moment. Um, So in the end, you know, this is a pathway somewhere. Try not to put too much into it. Of course, you want it to be brilliant. You want to get wonderful reviews from your examiners. But remember that this is not going to be the most important thing that you ever do. You'll be much more important things when you are um, an academic and you'll be able to be part of a team Mm. that's really going places. So, you know, that kind of levelling and that gravity, I think, is important to to remember mm. and to communicate. I try to communicate that to my to my PhD students. Although, as I say at the time, it feels like it's, <laughs> it does. It's, it's all some, consuming, isn't it? It is all it's, consuming. It's your whole world for a it while, is. and then yeah. uh, and then actually trying to share that with uh, with fatherhood or for motherhood is is also challenging. Yeah. Um, but how would you, from your experience as a student and now as a, a supervisor of many PhDs, how would you describe the life of a PhD student? It's usually quite solitary um, and only because the likelihood of you finding somebody who's doing something similar is probably quite small. So it's usually quite solitary. Mm -hmm. It can be very threatening. Um, Some days are diamonds and some days are not. You feel that, you know, you're really onto it in some days and other days you're just, you don't know where the the ideas are going to, going to come from. Um, So I think it can be overwhelming if you allow it to be. Um, But it's a very rewarding experience as well. You're in a very privileged position doing a PhD. This might sound a bit mealy mouth, (laughs) but you are in a very privileged position in being able to pursue something to such depth in, in in a very focused way. So you know, be, be, be mindful that this is actually a gift. Um, and there are rewards at the end of it, the rewards at the end yes. of it. Yeah. So while it's not the most important thing you'll probably ever do in your life or the most important piece of work that you'll ever produce, it's still one of the most, the, the, but your best opportunity to delve that deeply into something. Yes, because when you go on and pursue a career in research or in academia, the chances are that you will have others who will do the spade work with you and for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll hire um, research assistants who will do the data collection. Mm-hmm. So you'll have a slightly different role. Um, so to actually be fully immersed in the research yourself, you can't outsource that, of course, if it's your PhD. Mm-hmm. To be fully immersed is um, a, a real privilege yes. and, and one that you probably won't do 
if you are pursuing a career in research, you'll probably recruit others to help you help you with that, which is great. You know, that's terrific uh, because you can spread yourself further. Then after you finished your PhD, you were already working as a lecturer I was, at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you continue with that role after you finished? Yes, I did. And I moved sideways from the field of nutrition and dietetics into public health and public health nutrition. So that was a, a move I made um, probably about five years into the academy, which allowed me to fully appreciate a different set of propositions because public health is a very different area of academia than uh, clinical mm-hmm. clinical nutrition, although I've still got my sort of feet in both areas, although I wouldn't ever rely on me to give you clinical advice. <laughs> <laughs> So I moved, I kind of moved sideways and that was exciting in itself to be able to move into a, a new area. Yeah, so despite being in a, new, in a new area, you're using the research skills that you gained through your PhD? Yes, I suppose my, my methodology is probably the most sound part of the work that I, I contribute now. Mm-hmm. I think I've got a reasonably good command on the theoretical propositions that sit in a methodology. I'm starting to sound a bit academic now, but, you know, uh, one's approach to, to uh, research um, we call methodology, and I'm, I'm, quite good at, I'm quite good at that and quite flexible with that, uh, partly because I had to do a lot of the work on the theoretical aspects of methodology when I was doing my PhD. And so does this, is this where you are today, where you always thought you'd land? Is it where you wanted to end up? Uh, in this role as a professor? <laughs> I never thought, I mean, you know, let's rewind to me 15 years old, left school because I was so disenchanted with school, not a very good or obedient student, <laughs> pupil, I think we called Is them. this sounding familiar tomorrow? <laughs> yes. <laughs> not very obedient. You know, the, the idea that I would ever become a professor was just... Unbelievable. I mean, literally mean? unbelievable. It just doesn't, you know, it just it doesn't register at all. It doesn't. And my family are still kind of gobsmacked at the at, at, at the fact that I'm, you know, a professor at a, a really good university. Do they understand what you do? Like, oh, not really. No, and I don't. But they're even pleased think, and proud. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. They've, they've got a copy of my book, although they've never read it. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, I'm in a very happy space at the moment. Um, Life is good. I'm probably, I was looking at a a whiteboard on which I'd put all my research um, and I was looking at yesterday and I'm probably a bit um, uh, overwhelmed by it. I've got about five PhD students, uh, the equivalent of six honours students. I've got half a dozen research proposals pending. So this is a bit of a pattern for you. You don't choose the easy path. No, (laughs) what can you do? I don't don't think too many, that's uh, what's coming out of this is I don't think too many people do, but. No, no. (laughs) What is the academics? Like, how can I make this harder for myself? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it it is like that because um, you've got to be in it to win it, okay? So there's no point in just backing one horse here because uh, it's a very competitive um, world out there when it comes to research funding. So you've got to be in a number of different propositions. And um, it just turns out that I have the skill set for each of these, which kind of works well. So if they all come off, I don't quite know what will happen. But anyway. Just give up sleeping. <laughs> 
for you, what is a PhD? It is a structured piece of research that addresses a research question. So normally what we do um, is if we want to know what the res- or what the knowledge gaps are, is the first thing we do is a literature review. We say, what does the literature have to say about this particular issue? And from that, we can normally find, um, because it's a problem for us, a, a couple of questions which the literature really hasn't been able to cover. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the basis of your research because you then turn your research questions into, you know, a voyage of exploration. Mm-hmm. So that becomes your aim. And then from that, you want to know what the stepping stones are. So they're your objectives. So what I'm saying is that I think a PhD is a formulated progression through a set of uh, ideas exploration, ideas gathering, and creating, in your own work, solutions to mm-hmm. try to bridge the knowledge gap. I think that that's, for me, what a, what a PhD so is. So there is a process, a, a clearly defined, for most PhDs, process that you're undertaking. Um, so for you, was it the stepping stone that you thought it would be into the career that you're in now? Yes, it would have been. An essential? It would have been essential. If I was going to take seriously the academy, then I um, needed to have a, a, a PhD. I was talking to somebody recently about their desire to do a PhD, and this is somebody who's working in research but actually in policy. And I said, don't forget that there are um, other ways of, of having higher level explorations through doctors of public health, doctors of education. So those degrees uh, come usually with a year's full-time coursework mm. uh, where you develop your ideas and your methodologies and then you do two years of, of research. So I said don't forget them because a PhD usually requires you to um, research in a fairly narrow field of whatever it is you're interested in, whereas something like a Doctor of Public Health actually expands that. It mm. actually broadens your capabilities of um, uh, what it is you're interested in. So I said to them, you know, make sure that what you want to do is met by a PhD because that will send you into an area of research, whereas if you did a Doctor of Public Health, you could easily work in policy. Mm-hmm. You know, In fact, it will train you to do that. There are many ways forward. Yeah. 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 PhD is not the only one. So one of our questions is what advice would you have for someone who's contemplating completing, uh, undertaking a PhD? Mm. Um, well, so. I'd want to talk to them about their career aspirations. If mm. they wanted to work in academia, then a PhD is probably something they should take seriously. If they wanted to develop high-level analytical skills and continue to work in, in, in policy or something like that, then I would certainly take seriously a Doctor of Public Health or a Doctor Mm. of Education uh, because they're usually quite focused on, I'll say, practical problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, PhDs are practical problems, but the DRPH and the the Doctor of Education are usually something, things that that focus much more on policy and practice. Ah, So it's a a process that leads you to an outcome, like a product, which then can be translation into practice. Yes, and usually it's an area that you yourself are interested in because you happen to be working Mm. in that area and you want to bring some ideas and some solutions to the problems that you face. So, Mm. you know, we use the word research translation Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, in ac- in academia, and unfortunately, not a lot of our research is translated into policy or practice. Mm-hmm. Not a lot. And if it is, it's usually uh, it takes a very long time to get there. Very by which time, it's time, superseded yeah. by something else. It's true. Something like sixteen years if it's uh-huh. uh, if it's from bench to backyard. Yeah. You know, mm. if it's a drug or something like that. Yeah. Um, whereas if you are following, let's say, a doctor of public health, and you're you're working on something that's a real problem in your organisation, there's a good chance that what you develop as part of your DRPH will be completely applicable mm. and transferable to your work site. Sort you of know, developed so- on site, in site. Yes. With the people for whom it's going to make the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it probably won't be bound and then put on the shelf. It'll probably be ex- explored. And, in fact, I remember because I used to teach on the DRPH, one of the components of the thesis was to say, okay, sh- Let's have a look at the impact, how you're, how you're going to create an, an impact through your work. That was actually half a chapter that the students had to uh, mm. undertake, which was very good because it really did have to exercise their minds about what's the useful, what's the utility of what I'm what I'm producing. And so, what about um, kids who are thinking about entering university, like finishing year twelve, or kids who are making subject choices for their senior schooling years, and and that. Uh, pressure to have made a decision about the rest of your life. What yeah. what do you, what sort of advice do you give to these kids? Yeah, I would say don't accept the possibility that this is going to affect the rest of your life. Mm. Um, do go to university. You'll find it beautifully interesting mm. and wonderfully engaging. But don't believe that you have to follow a path that you started when you went to university and that you're going to have to continue that path. Mm-hmm. You can move around and the university helps you do that. So, for example, at Flinders, uh, semester one starts usually at the end of February and the beginning of March. But around about the end of April, there is a whole program which says, do you think you've um, made the wrong choice? Mm-hmm. I can't remember the actual language, but it's we can help you choose something that's different from what you started doing. You may feel that you would rather be over here than over. And there's a whole process to allow students to do that. Mm-hmm. So going to university is the thing. Once you're there, you can move around. You mm-hmm. can change degrees. There's no embarrassment uh, uh, about that. In fact, I changed degrees. The bit of I didn't tell you was I went off and did a degree in, in chemistry <laughs> and I stuck it for a year. <laughs> I stuck it for a year, didn't yeah. like it, and then moved into nutrition. I, yeah. I, I, I saved you from that. So, <laughs> so you can move around. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is to go, mm. is to go to university and enjoy what it means to be a student, enjoy what it means to go through a process of structured learning. It is, it's a, it is all about the whole experience. It is. It's yeah. a, it's Not just very, what you learn. Yeah. It's the big... whole experience. And you can chop and change. Mm-hmm. You can chop and change. Don't feel that you are hemmed in just because you started um, a chemistry a degree. A chemistry <laughs> degree. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, so that, that, that's the advice I would give them. Go to university and make sure that um, you choose something that can be flexible. And if you change, don't worry about that. Yeah. So we're coming to the end now and uh, there's a lot of myths that you hear about life as an academic or, um, you know, so doing PhD, a PhD life. And- what, what have you heard that you think is just utter rubbish and you'd like to set straight? Um, I think that utter rubbish is that because you come from one particular aspect of the academy, 
you don't have the knowledge, the skills, the interest that you can express in other parts of the mm -hmm. academy. Yes, it will be a journey. Yes, you'll probably have to learn the lingo. <laughs> and yes, you'll probably have to immerse yourself. But don't feel hemmed in. Mm -hmm. Don't feel that because you started a science degree, you can't do something in the social sciences or the humanities. Mm -hmm. Those doors are always waiting to be opened for you. So, so don't think that. Mm -hmm. That's... I think there's a mystery that if you go into one aspect of the academy, you then you have there. to stay there. That's where you live. Yeah. That's right. And yet you right. bring, because you bring with you a whole different perspective in if you're moving into a different area, which is so helpful a Wonderfully lot of the time. helpful, wonderfully helpful. And you often feel like a bit of a fraud when you go into another area. You mm -hmm. think that people are going to pick on you because, hey, you didn't, you don't belong here. Yeah. You know, what was your first degree? Biochemistry, I'm sorry. And you're <laughs> knocking on the door of sociology. <laughs> you know, you feel that. And it, it hardly ever happens. I remember the first couple of papers I had to give about my PhD work were in conferences that were kind of saturated with people from the humanities. And what I demonstrated was a lot of theoretical constructs they had I could use and cash in for some really interesting empirical uh, work. And they were fascinated by that because usually they kind of stay in the area of theory, mm -hmm. you know. But to actually have a toolbox that allowed you to unpack some things that are actually examinable, you know, in, in real life, I thought that they were going to cane me, but they never did. They really never did. They were very, very welcoming. So never feel that there are parts of the university that you can't um, be interested in, whether it's going from sociology to science and engineering or whether it's going from biochemistry to uh, philosophy. It's all there for you. Excellent. Okay, John, well, thank you very much for your Insights. Absolutely fascinating and, history. Uh, maybe we'll get you back for the discussion about nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anytime. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. It's been great. The very last thing that we should end with is a huge thank you to all of the people who came and gave their time to be interviewed for this um, podcast series. It's, very generous. It was very generous of them and it was so fascinating. And uh, after every interview, I felt so inspired <laughs> to be a researcher and, and to use my PhD. So it was a very eye-opening experience and a, um, a, a really interesting experience. Yes, and we're really very grateful to yeah. every single one of them. But we're also especially grateful to Dr. Sharon Pittman for yeah, telling us, gave us the, about the grant. <laughs> the inside story about the grant. Yes. yes. She gave us the inside story about the grant that we applied for and we got, which supported um, the production of this podcast. So thank you to Inspiring South Australia and to Sharon uh, for your very generous um, support of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Career Sessions with Dr. Stephanie Champion and Dr. Tamara Agnew. If you like the show and want to know more, check out www.careersessions.com where you can send us your suggestions for future series and subscribe so you know when a new episode is posted. If you love it, tell all your friends and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks to our sponsor, Inspiring South Australia, for their generous support, and to our producer, Rory, at Podbooth. Join us next time when we talk careers with another leader in the field.